0: Welcome to the GRC Professional Podcast, where we discuss all things GRC.
1: The important thing is that Hong Kong has just not been hit only by the pandemic, but prior to that, you have the US-China trade war, yep. and then internally, you have the social unrest. So Hong Kong has been hit by a triple whammy, if you like to put it that way. And this triple whammy has certainly an impact on not only the economy, uh, the social situation, but also... Um, the compliance profession yeah. um, as a whole.
0: Welcome to the GRC Professional Podcast. My name is Kwame Slusher. I'm the editor of the GRC Professional Magazine. And today, once again, we have Professor Angus Young from Hong Kong Baptist University. Hi, Angus. How are you doing?
1: Good. Thank you. Yourself?
0: Ah, oh, not too bad. i be happy when uh, things... I don't know. I don't know what normal will look like, but if things are better better than this... <laughs> um, I certainly so I think today we're going to sort of look at the impact that I guess COVID nineteen and the disruption has had on AML compliance and what that has meant for organisations. Um, and we're looking at this for two reasons. Um, one because obviously that's a critical issue to look at, but two because our financial crimes congress is coming up at the end of this month as well. So I guess it's, it's a good time to get people's brains and gear to start thinking about maybe some of the things that they want to tackle or ask questions about at that event as well. Uh, So yeah, a lot of things happening all at once. Uh, But to really get started in this particular interview, um, you know, we've seen recent action from Oztrack. you know, it's shown that AML-CTF has been challenging for organizations even before COVID-19 hit. Um, So I guess it'll be interesting to note from your perspective, Angus. What are some of the issues that you've noticed that's been brought on by the pandemic and the lockdowns?
1: Okay. uh, I'll just put my remarks in the situation and context of Hong Kong. Yeah. Okay. Um, The the important thing is that Hong Kong has just not been hit only by the pandemic, but prior that you have the US-China trade war and then internally you have the social unrest so, Hong Kong has been hit by a triple whammy, if you like to put it that way, and this triple whammy has certainly an impact on not only the economy, uh, the social situation, but also um, the compliance profession yes. um, as a whole. So. Uh, we are hearing some firms, uh, mainly international firms, uh, that are situated in Hong Kong, are starting to um, downsize and obviously the compliance professionals are being laid off. Uh, Not that I know of in large figures because we we don't have official figures, but this is whispering between uh, practitioners. So there are signs uh, of that occurring. Uh, At the same time, we have much more, if I like to put it that way, uh, AML challenges at present and ahead because of these three. And then I'll give you a fourth factor. The fourth factor is that the uh, Chinese government together with the Hong Kong government and the Macau government has worked out a Great Bay Area, which made up of Hong Kong, Macau, and seven other cities in China, including Shenzhen, which is southern China, mm-hmm. uh, closest to Hong Kong and Macau. To be the Greater Bay Area, to designate it as a financial hub, as a Silicon Valley, especially a Silicon Valley. Yeah. And you have three different jurisdictions, three different sets of regulators, uh, different sets of laws. You can imagine uh, that the AML requirement, once you integrate in this area, would be even more challenging with these diversities. So, that would be the fourth factor looking forward.
0: So, i Apart assume... from the uh, global addition. Yeah, of course. And, you know, you, you just find the sort of three separate sort of jurisdictional spaces. I, I would imagine that would also mean three separate cultural elements as well, which would make it complicated um, in terms of just trying to. If you're an organization operating in all three of those spaces having to have a different approach to pl- compliance in each one
1: certainly yeah. uh, not only culturally uh, within firms but culturally among regulators so yeah. the regulatory culture is different uh, the firm's culture is different and the jurisdiction's own uh, you know uh, set up cultural uh, Practices in terms of how they do business is also different. So the way Macau does business is way different from Hong Kong, even though uh, you know they, they've been relatively uh, open uh, for the last hundred years because colonialisation as a free port. But even between that Macau and Hong Kong is very different in the way they do business, uh, and the regulators are way way different. Uh, in part because you know uh, Macau had the import of the Portuguese kind of regulatory culture, and Hong Kong with the English. And then the Chinese, with a, a, a different uh, ongoing changing culture, uh, you can see the clash
0: there. Right, excellent. And another thing that you mentioned, which of course we particularly interest to of our listeners, is that you know you said there are no official figures here, but talking about those major HK firms um, that might be downsizing in a compliance, um, I, I guess. Could it be, and of course I know it's all speculative, um, but could it be that there's still a sense of uh, an opposition between business and compliance? Still seeing compliance as the policeman as opposed to enabler?
1: Uh, Yes and no. Yes in the sense that uh, the staff in general would look at compliance officers as I told my students. Uh, I said, if you're in compliance in the company and you're a popular person, I guess you're not doing a job because uh, your job is not going to be popular, uh, not only internally policing, but telling off staff. Uh, that That's the, the major issue. And of course, I've also highlighted in the past that uh, there's a cultural problem as well with Chinese firms, uh, financial service firms in Hong Kong in particular, uh, would have a, OK, we have a problem now. Can I put more money and resources to solve the problem? Whereas the compliance professionals say it's not just about money, it's about changing certain behavioral things. And the Chinese says, can I buy this or do that? And just to solve the problem, just by throwing money at the problem. Yeah. And so we, we have that ongoing tension going on there. So I guess it, it, it's still a long way to go uh, where they could see it as an enabler. so far it's more of a okay it's something they have to do they have to hire these people otherwise you know the regulator is going to get on them so that has still been the attitude so far i know however there are a few changing attitudes there are some but unfortunately not as major as it is
0: and i think you mentioned um and i I could have misheard you here but you said international firms as well so i would imagine it's not just the the chinese companies that were but um, um, oh, yeah. the,
1: the no. international firms are excellent so the, the international firms especially being branches they're, they're excellent in terms of that yeah. but I was told by practitioners that they tend to to service um, issues that are AML requirements in the US in Europe in the UK which is different from the local uh, one yes, so the, right. the local uh, compliance professionals seem to be, able need to answer questions about the foreign jurisdiction's concerns rather than the, the concerns in hong kong not not it doesn't mean that it's not important but it seems that it would include uh, those of the foreign jurisdiction's concerns so i guess it's a tale of two cities if you like to put it that way yeah. that you have a contrasting uh, hong, uh, chinese ones with, with one, the international funds another, and then the smaller amount of local Hong Kong firms uh, with perhaps in between both
0: worlds. Right, of course. Uh, well, so if we can move on a bit, I guess. Uh, so obviously you've set out a whole uh, swathe of issues um, in the first question. And I guess with the COVID-19 and that bit of disruption um, and obviously, that's not the only issue, um, as you pointed out, but I mean, what do you think is going to happen moving forward as we move into the sort of recovery phase? I mean, what are going to be some of the lingering issues? I mean, apart from obvious, the the obvious political tensions?
1: I guess it would be coming to terms with um, the demands externally and the internal uh, developments of Hong Kong. So there are two ways to look at developments of Hong Kong. One would be more integration in China because of the Greater Bay Area Project that seems to be uh, going to be a major uh, player in terms of reviving Hong Kong's economy. And then you have the uh, external, uh, more hostile environment with the fears of the US uh, removing Hong Kong as a, you know, favorite trading status or privileged status, uh, complicating things, yeah. um, and therefore in AML, in a way... Uh, increases the work of AML, but on the other hand, uh, navigating between, you know, the Chinese integration and, you know, the the way that the West looks at Hong Kong being a conduit of China, uh, being more close to China, meaning that it, they'll draw a, a line with Hong Kong, uh, uh, more, less of an international city towards a more Chinese city. I guess that tensions uh, in the on, after, you know, in the, this or the following two years, uh, I think would be the most difficult uh, part for a compliance professional to navigate.
0: Right. And, and of course, you, you mentioned the difficulties around AML and, and we were talking about different cultures and different approaches. What, if we could isolate just a few, what are some of the differences in terms of the approaches of say, maybe the American companies might have when it comes to monitoring AML versus maybe the Chinese companies? Like what, what, are, what would be some of the clashes? Um, that you okay. might we'll be seeing. All
1: right, uh, for the Chinese, um, the aspects between what is law and policy and regulations and administrative uh, uh, practices are blurred. So sometimes an administrative regulation, a formal regulation, or interim regulations, all these are all messed up because um, this is how the the Chinese regulator is the problem if they see a problem they will put out a measure pretty quickly sometimes called interim but the interim could go on for years Uh, and of course there are administrative measures uh, the way to response but then the administrative measures you know react same like uh, regulations formally so but the regulatory uh, administrative measures tends to be more informal Uh, you tend to find out when you you know when your head's against the wall they tell you okay this is a new administrative measures and With that diversity, plus uh, the Chinese uh, regulators themselves, uh, practitioners in Hong Kong will tell me the same thing, that uh, it depends on which city you deal with, which branch within the same regulators you deal with, and which individual you deal with, because the interpretations of the measures, the regulations, the policies, and the laws maybe vary a little bit because they're looking at context, and those individuals, some are more bureaucratic, see it as a more narrow focus, some with a more progressive mind see, okay, this is a business operational issue that they, they would see it from that perspective. So I guess that uh, would be a real uh, a big headache for uh, uh, the uh, AML professionals. And not to mention that AML law in China is quite different in the sense that, for instance, uh, in terms of know your own customers, uh, know your customers, they look at it as identifying your customers. So, the FATF uh, report recently in China highlighted them, and they've tried to change that. But whatever the Chinese are changing, it's still not quite know your customer. So, it's more like they like to look at it as identifying your customer, And they don't tend to look at unexplained wealth as a major issue. So, even between the border lines, these uh, will continue to be uh, problems and and friction between the two and the compliance professions which have to uh, meet up with the Hong Kong regulation and then as well as the Chinese uh, types of administrative measures policy slash law uh, will find it very difficult to do between the two especially with money moving back and forth borders.
0: So when you speak of unexplained wealth are we referring to the fact that they're not really looking too deeply into who the ultimate beneficial hold um, owner is?
1: Yeah, in particular, especially if it's a business account. Yeah. If it's a business account when you know, the, the Chinese banks would have a long-standing business account, and there has been obviously uh, investigations in Europe about Chinese banks' branches where the Chinese companies in Europe are suddenly channeling large amount of money back and forth to the Chinese headquarters, to the Chinese branches. You know, that thing, um, it, it was not caught up by the Chinese branch overseas. And therefore, there was some investigation, and that was a couple of years ago, quite recent, but a couple of years ago, uh, that, that problem. So that problem still more or less persists in some instances because uh, given the economic situation in China of COVID-19 and even before COVID-19, the U.S. trade tensions, uh, that meant that the large corporations in China uh, tend to move their money back and in- forth to ensure there's enough liquidity uh to keep you know businesses running and so forth and of course between the the headquarters and the many many subsidiaries and affiliated businesses so that the banks in china tend not to pick that up because they say this is a a, within the holding group within the company uh they're probably moving money back forth but then the europeans will see hey but because they have branches overseas and they're taking money from overseas and moving back to headquarters and back and forth, mm-hmm. uh, is there any laundering process? How come the amount was suddenly so large, yeah. unexplained, and yet the banks didn't pick it up? In Ch- uh, The Chinese branches in, overseas didn't pick it up.
0: Right, right. Uh, so I guess that's. it's, I guess it's definitely a bit of a challenge then if you are an international company, And you are then, as you you mentioned, how international companies tend to look a lot of their own regulations from their own jurisdictions as well as the Chinese one. But if you have all these different levels of interpretation, some being more bureaucratic, some being more progressive, as you say, that would be really hard to comply and know that you are doing what the regulator expects.
1: Yes, and of course, the the Hong Kong practitioners, in particular, the financial services, some of them are actually uh, licensed under the manager and charge programs where uh, they have to register the name more like, you know, bear and far yeah. in, in Australia, quite similar in some aspects. And so these professionals in AML will be sweaty by saying, am I going to lose my license if I do that? Am I going to lose my license if I do this? So they're, they're caught between a hard place and a rock. And at the same time, I was told that many companies are buying some uh, softwares on AML with provided by many providers mm. and yet uh, what I was hearing back is that these softwares are still problematic at many keeping problems they're not catching up with the trend trends of changes some of the software are not you know updated that quickly in terms of changes in regulations and policies and some of the policies and regulations not captured so uh, the AML professionals have to go in there and then manually check what the, the software has missed out so I guess uh, the work is more complicated yep. but at the same time when the company buys these software they think they could cut down the number of people overseeing the AML compliance so again uh, the, uh, you know there's there's another level of tensions there uh, for AML professionals in Hong Kong but uh, on the other hand uh, I'd see there's some level of positive going on because the level of complications there, the level of professionalism and sophisticatedness is required of an AML professional in Hong Kong increases as a result of that. Okay. So I guess that's a good thing to see in terms of more expertise. But then they would have to deal with all these arrays of, of possible tensions and problems emerging, uh, things that they could see in the horizon and even black funny events they can't foresee
0: well and I guess that's really good news because I know we've spoken in the past about the, the way that compliance has been viewed and the compliance training has been viewed in the past and there've definitely been some challenges. So I guess it's good to hear that at least in some area there's this increasing level of professionalization. Um I, I'm interested in what you said about the software and I guess the reg tech side of things. I mean in could it could it be that maybe some organizations might be looking at the regulatory technology as a replacement for compliance professional?
1: Certainly, uh, they're looking at it in a sense that not hiring more compliance professionals and using more of the software so the existing staff could oversee it. And of course, if they downsize, the international firms downsize in Hong Kong, they would put, you know, perhaps more likely to put more reliance on e-software with a few uh, smaller or, 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 you know, group of AML professionals were seeing that issue. So uh, I guess there will be more realized the company was thinking that buying the software would solve the problems, but on the ground level, it just gives the professionals uh, a bit more work and uh, more uh, concerns to look at. So I, I guess it's going on two ends. Yeah. So they're thinking it will cost savings, but yet it's just increasing the work
0: of uh, the people actually doing it. So one of the things, speaking from an Australian context that we've seen, is that the regtechs have made a great effort to sort of collaborate and work along with the regulators. And I think it's it's an effort to make sure that they're sort of on par with what the regulators are expecting to see, so they can help organizations comply with their obligations. Is there that kind of relationship in Hong Kong? Are the regulators attempting to, I mean, the reg Tech's attempting to reach out to the regulators um, to sort of make sure that they can keep up with the emerging trends?
1: Yes, I think they they are, and particular in Hong Kong, there's a huge push towards fintech, smart city yeah. uh, related things. Because one is part of the Greater Bay Area plan. The other thing is that it's seen as the one of the uh, uh, maybe bullet, silver bullet, or whatever to solve the post-COVID uh, depression or economic recession of Hong Kong. Yeah. So they're moving a lot more in that direction. They they're offering. Uh, any fintech professionals, uh, special visas for residency directly, um, and trying to attract talents around the world on fintech to come to Hong Kong. And of course, universities uh, 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 has now have fintech out uh, of their degree or an entire masters of fintech um, being set up. So there's a lot of push on that. But and but the same time is that the the practitioners actually think that once you have fintech and you have red tech together embedded into fintech that would solve the AML uh, uh, problem and you need less people to work on it physically Mm -hmm. Uh, that I think is they're not thinking in the right direction because they think that once I put it in the technology Everything will be solved, um, and I would be seeing that problem. And my thinking is just the opposite. Once you put the technology in, you not only have to catch up on certain technology gaps, you also have to catch up because the number of transactions is so much. uh, Someone needs to work with technology to be able to capture all those things that uh, the naked eye doesn't catch, and then, you know, look at it more thoroughly. So I guess the fintech would complicate the matters in a way that uh, unless the, the technology and the person's dialogue or communications are well, if there's a gap between what the technology says and what the person's assessments are, uh, I guess that, that would be much bigger problem uh, that may not be, to be detected very quickly until it becomes a problem too big and it explodes in the faces of people. Right,
0: right. Well, Angus, I, I think we're going to end this podcast for now. I mean, we've touched on a wide range of issues, way from political issues to, I guess, um, views and technology. We definitely have to do a part two um, because I think there is a lot to be unpacked here. Uh, but thank you very much for your time this afternoon. And I hope to have the podcast again soon.
1: Thank you very much. Always a pleasure.
0: This podcast was a production of the Governance, Risk and Compliance Institute. And the music was produced by Rob Neary.